0: Welcome to Donne Talks, provided to you by Donne, Women in Music. I am your host, Gabriella Di and in every episode I interview guests who are amplifying change, people who are using their voices and their positions to create bigger impact in our society. Today's guest is Australian soprano and composer Deborah Cheatham. Deborah describes herself as a 21st century urban woman who is yorta yorta by birth, stolen generation by policy, soprano by diligence, composer by necessity, and lesbian by practice.
1: There actually were some racial slurs that were delivered to my dressing room, can you believe, after a performance. Now look, I'm a 55-year-old, yoda yoda woman who's pretty much seen it all. So let me tell you, it still gutters me, it still takes away my breath that someone make a racial, not only a racial but a gender specific slur it makes me just more determined to protect the generations that are coming behind me to protect our younger artists from this experience and to weed out that kind of ignorance and arrogance and rid our our beautiful music community of it altogether, because in Australia there are so few opportunities we really can't afford to give any to people that just have not evolved as human beings.
0: She has been a leader and pioneer in the Australian arts landscape for more than 25 years. In 2014 Queen's Birthday Honours List, Deborah was appointed as an Officer of the Order of Australia for distinguished service to the performing arts as an opera singer, composer and artistic director to the Development, of indigenous artists and to innovation in performance. In 2009, Deborah established the Short Black Opera as a national not-for-profit opera company devoted to the development of indigenous singers. The following year, she produced the premiere of her first opera, *Peak & Summer. This landmark work was Australia's first indigenous opera and has been a vehicle for the development of a new generation of indigenous opera singers. Deborah, it's a real pleasure to have you with us today.
1: Thanks so much, Gabriella. It's uh, it's such a pleasure to be with you, and uh, what a great initiative uh, this is. So thank you so much for having me. I've, I've been really looking forward to this very much.
0: Yes, we too. I can tell you. I think I would like to start uh, with your personal journey as a musician, as a singer. How did all started for you who were your role models and how did the singing career developed into composing for example
1: I think this is is this is something that so many musicians will or so many singers will relate to but singing is the earliest memory I have actually it's my mother's voice that I can hear singing it's it's remained very close to me my mother uh, Actually, I'm leaning up against her in church and I can, I can feel the breath in and out and, and a hymn being sung. And it's still a very comforting memory because uh, that, that connection that you have with breath and sound and the intimacy of the relationship, the bond between the, the mother and the child. Of course, in this instance, it's my adopted mother's voice that I can hear. Yeah. As um, as I mentioned in my very short bio, I'm um, stolen generation by government policy. Many people understand that uh, Where are uh, in Australia, we are still really coming to terms with the effects, the lasting effects of the forced removal of Aboriginal children from their families, from their communities, from their mother's arms. And many of these children were uh, forced into a kind of, well, in in America they called it slavery. Here in Australia we we call it domestic servitude. But it was unpaid forced labour. Many of the children were taken, uh, put into ghastly institutions, children's homes where they were mistreated, then sent off to basically be slave labour to uh, wealthy families. Here in Australia, this is a history that we rarely talk about. In fact, this week, very disappointingly, our Prime Minister declared there had been no slavery in Australia. He's had to backtrack uh, from those comments. He hasn't done a very good job of it. But uh, the history shows that so many of the Stolen Generation children who were taken, as I was, ended up not as i did in a loving home where i had a mother a father a sister most stolen generation children ended up in very terrible circumstances Mm. but here i was as a young girl uh, growing up in a loving family Um, they happened to be very uh very strict baptists i've often said that i don't think there's any other kind of baptist i think all of them are strict. <laughs> but music, music was really essential in every service. Uh, you know, the great hymns of the Wesleys. And uh, it was a wonderful beginning in terms of uh, just every week there was this great outpouring of music through song. And, uh, and I definitely, I treasure those memories. Uh, I think it was the closest that I could ever be to my adopted mother on those times mm-hmm. when she was singing, and I just felt her
0: breath. That's amazing. I, th- I think it's the most shocking thing when you talk about the the stolen generation. Just to think that it was not that long ago, because those are stories you hear. You imagine they were hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Do you think? And I'm sure it will be part of who you are, even though you didn't know for how many how many years until you actually found out or contacted your birth mother or got in contact with your roots
1: i was into my mid-20s before i met my aboriginal mother monica monica's yorta yorta woman the yorta yorta nation is a matrilineal nation so i take my heritage from my mother her mother Uh you know gabriella it's a complicated history in australia of misinformation if I put it nicely uh, Mm. outright lies if I'm more honest and Mm. uh, yeah I'd been lied to like so many children I was told I'd been abandoned that wasn't true and so it took many years to heal that rift once Monica and I met there wasn't an instant understanding I I was still working under the misinformation that um, that she hadn't wanted me and that couldn't be it could not have been further from the truth. So, yes, mm-hmm. all of those experiences in my life really do obviously inform the adults that I have become, mm-hmm. uh, but also it has informed uh, much of the music that I've written. You mentioned Pecan Summer earlier, and, uh, in fact, we celebrate the 10th anniversary of Pecan Summer this year. Oh, a well,
0: brandy. Oh,
1: wow. Uh, it, I know. It's gone, it has gone so quickly. And so many yeah. achievements made by the, the singers who started out with us there. We were forming a new company. We were training the first uh, company of Indigenous classically trained singers. Some had uh, begun their studies, like our baritone, Don, Don Benrose, who'd begun his studies as a young man but was told, no, look, you're Aboriginal, there's no place for you in the world of opera. And he'd sort of disconnected right at the crucial time, you know, in those mm-hmm. early twenties when you're really, especially for baritones, you're really yeah, finding just your, starting. You're really just starting. And um, eventually Don and I connected, and really that that began our company, Short Black Opera. I, mm-hmm. I couldn't just start with myself, I needed at least one other singer. That was Don, and, <laughs> and so many others have come. Ten years, Pecan Summer. You know, it was really important to me at that time that uh, that I wrote Pick and Summer back, well, I guess I began it in 2008 and I'd completed it by 2010, fortunately, because that's when we premiered. <laughs> and uh, we'd brought together the company by that stage, singers who were established in other genres of music but had dreamed of singing classical music but yeah. had never had the opportunity So we provided that opportunity through Pecan Summer, but it couldn't couldn't just be any story. You know, as much as I love the 19th century repertoire and the early 20th century repertoire and some of the 21st century repertoire too, I felt at the time that it was really important that we wrote a story that would have resonance for Aboriginal people. And I can tell you, Gabriella, Uh, There is not one Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person in Australia who has not been touched by the policy of the stolen children. That has touched every family. And, in fact, I'd go further to say that it's actually touched every life in Australia. What is a deficit for Aboriginal people in Australia is a deficit for all Australians. And I think with the exception of our prime minister i think that australians are generally starting to understand that finally that there's this gap that has been in our lives mm. and i find that music is a very powerful way of bringing an understanding i mean in australia actually we were miles away from understanding when when i started out as an as an artist still miles away from understanding when i wrote pick and summer but we've gone from not knowing at all to knowing but there's that critical step beyond knowing and that is understanding yeah. and i think this is where music plays an absolutely essential part in the cultural life of a nation well any nation but particularly australia right now
0: i want to go back a little bit because i want to find uh, find out how did the soprano became the composer i'm very curious about that first because i like think as...
1: how, i'd like to know how many sopranos out there are composers as well. I'm sure I can't be the only one.
0: I know. I know a few through the project actually, and um, and I feel quite happy. I was never encouraged to compose, but every day I wish I could because I think it's such a, a fantastic way to express. And we we express with our voice singing. telling the stories of uh, composers but uh, having this power to tell this story with your own voice it must be an equal um, reward for for an artist and I think because I don't know I'm in Brazil we have so many indigenous uh, history as well and my grandmother had indigenous blood and 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 she was a singer because there is so much tradition in singing, you know, uh, uh, I'm sure in Australia as well, I know the indigenous tribes and all the songs they sing, but she was ashamed of telling people that was part of her. And I see when you tell this story, how much uh, in Brazil, we also don't educate our population. We don't talk about it. We don't learn in school and then we learn they existed, but there's no um, recognition of the... The, the story and the contribution. So I, I I imagine, and please correct me, that the moment when you discover all this huge background you had, you had to tell the story. Is that how you became a composer or you started before? Well,
1: I guess, uh, I guess um, the hint is uh, in that short bio, again, a composer yeah. by necessity. Uh, I'd been singing for something like 20 years. I'd uh, travelled to Europe, to the UK. I'd performed in many great venues. I'd written a lot of uh, shows that had enjoyed quite a bit of success. But I'd never sung in any of the major companies in Australia. I still haven't. And there's a very uh, obvious reason for that, and Australia just wasn't ready for an Indigenous opera singer. The weight of low expectation on Indigenous Australians is, is such a huge burden. It's a crushing burden. It can crush the life out of you. And we see that time and time again when members of our community lose hope mm. and they don't want to go on and and many of them decide not to. And that is a real tragedy. But I felt that I beyond what I was doing with my own voice, I couldn't see the point in being Australia's only Indigenous opera singer. I mean, what is that? What does that I say? I know, right. That, that's, that's a ridiculous position to be in, actually. I wasn't the first. There, look, there have been many Indigenous singers who've, who've sung operatically for their families and, and have loved that style of singing but haven't been able to make a career of it yeah. because of lack of opportunity and educational opportunity. Uh, and that's a big story on its own, yeah, but the first successful indigenous singer was a was a tenor by the name of Harold Blair, and he had a big career here and in the US and also um European tours and a beautiful, beautiful voice. In fact, he was so successful that voice really probably it was used in such a way that you know there was this burden on him. He mm. was an oddity. He is an Aboriginal man who can sing in mm. Italian. Mm. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's unbelievable and it's cringeworthy, but he was an educated man with a beautiful voice. Why shouldn't he sing in Italian or any other language, other language okay. for that matter? And so he did, and he did it very well. So I wasn't the first, but I didn't want to be the last. And yeah. so... Or the know, only yeah well that's right what was the point so i really wanted to open up this opportunity to the many singers that i knew out there could have could contribute a really particular sound to uh to opera in australia perhaps in the way that the african-american uh great opera singers of of our time and of the ages yeah. you know, uh the way that they've contr- contributed as well so i felt that we could do this and Writing Pecan Summer was, um, it was necessary. Uh, I trained in composition while I was doing my music degree at the Sydney Conservatorium, but mm-hmm. not I, I didn't major in composition. I think from my other very, very early memories of just constantly making up songs that would go for kilometres and kilometres in the back of the car, I'd be making up these great you know, move over Wagner. I could I could make up a, a constant stream of, <laughs> a cycle, uh, recitative title. and aria and you name it. On the long holidays that my parents would, you know, would be, I'd be in the back of the car just singing, composing something that was just coming to me. But in a formal sense, uh, I, I guess really my my big opportunity came uh, twenty years ago, as uh, I was approached to write the. Welcome to Country Song for the opening ceremony of the Sydney Olympic Games, and so I wrote that. It was an a cappella piece, and uh, I, I sang it live. Which um, uh, in some of these ceremonies, not everything is sung live. So that was uh, that was an amazing uh, experience, yeah. and really, it's been a twenty year journey. So. You know, one of those overnight sensations, not really. I'm no. Not a sensation, but it didn't all just happen overnight, I guess is what I'm trying to say.
0: But you uh, are Pecan a sensation.
1: Summer. Oh, well, that's kind. <laughs> but Pecan Summer, you know, I, I had the title of Pecan Summer for a long time. I, I didn't have a story. I had the title and no story. How strange mm-hmm. is that? In t- uh, 2006, I moved from the town that I grew up in, which was Sydney. A beautiful harbour city of Sydney I moved to Melbourne uh, which is a fantastic city for cultural life and the arts it's just so wonderful yeah and uh, so is Sydney but Melbourne in a different way yeah and I had this title and I knew I wanted to write an opera and I wanted this opera to be like a beacon for other mm-hmm. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander singers and I met an elder from, if you're not familiar with that term, in uh, First Nations cultures, the, the seniors in our in our communities they are the most revered and hold the highest place of honour. Uh, senior elder of the Bunwarang people, Aunt Carolyn Briggs, mm-hmm. actually um, said to me, "You know, what what are you doing? Uh, what what's your next big project?" And I said, "Well, I want to write an opera, but I don't have the story yet." And she knew that I was Stolen Generation and she knew Mm -hmm. a little bit about my family. Well, actually, she knew a lot more about my family than I did at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And she said, there's a story that you need to find out about. Go up to the town of Shepparton, which is about two and a half hours north of, uh, Mm -hmm. driving north of of Melbourne. Go up to the town of Shepparton and meet with the Yorta Yorta people there and ask them about this historic event called the Walk-Off from Cumra Gunja Mission Station. And so I thought, oh, that's intriguing. And I did. I went up there and I I found another senior elder, Auntie uh, Frances Briggs Matheson, and I asked her, Auntie Frances, will you tell me about the walk-off from Cumra Gunja Mission Station? Uh, By that time I knew that it had happened in 1939. I knew that the Yorta Yorta people from northern Victoria, southern New South Wales, uh, had had protested against the treatment that was meted out against them by the government and by officials and they had walked off Camaragunja Mission Station in protest. Now, in
0: 1939,
1: Mm -hmm. that was a really dangerous thing to do because Aboriginal people weren't even counted as human beings in 1939. They had no rights whatsoever. You could argue that today there are still many basic rights to be won, but at that time it was... uh, it was incredibly difficult for Aboriginal people to have any freedoms to move about. So to walk off this mission station that they'd all been rounded up onto and forced to live on for the past 70 years, to walk off that station was a really courageous act. Now, I knew all of this mm-hmm. when I went to meet with Auntie Frances, but what I didn't know and what she told me was that my own grandparents my own Aboriginal grandparents that I never met, they were part of the walk-off. They were part of the the story that I was writing the opera about. And uh, I just knew then that this this wasn't a project that I'd thought up. This was a project that had been calling me. It had been calling me for something like 30 years. And it took me a long time to hear that. But once I did, I was able to tune into a part of my being a part, of my, a part of my identity that really had been denied me for so long. It's been a long journey, actually, a really yeah. long journey to piece all of the bits together. It's like trying to put a jigsaw puzzle together and you don't have the picture on the box and you also don't have all of the pieces. It's, it's a really complex task, but I'm glad to yeah. say that in all of that, really, music has been guiding me.
0: That's amazing. That's a, such a... Thank you for sharing the story with us. Do you think this, the making of this opera changed you to a new artist? I think, uh, I
1: think it's undeniable. I mean, it was the first role that I ever sang in its entirety. Um, it was the first lead role that I'd had in an opera. I had to write my own. Oh, well. <laughs> but. <laughs> it it didn't become you know a centerpiece it's not the tosca of aboriginal opera it is um it's very much an ensemble piece in fact my character ella she doesn't really have an aria of her own i I wrote them for other people and not for myself but i think that's because for so long i've been singing my repertoire on my own Uh, well actually not on my own i'm very fortunate that my partner in life is also my partner in music my beautiful tony she's she's at home looking after the she's parents. watching
0: i yeah, hope she's I hope watching so. well, if,
1: if, if gracie may and lottie lou will leave her alone for long enough they're our two puppies but um uh you know i'd been there on stage in recital occasionally with wonderful uh collaborations with with dear friends uh great mezzo linda barkan who was there for the all of the seasons of Pecan Summer and many other people besides. But what was it that I was going to do? I was going to write something for myself. Yes, but what about making a statement? What about saying Australia? It's not just one Aboriginal person at a time who can be successful because really up to that point, that's all Australia could really handle. One Cathy Freeman, you know, Mm. one Yvonne Goolagong one Aboriginal at a time and they're the exception and we can mm. console ourselves that you know there are exceptions mm-hmm. no no uh, we are exceptional yeah. <laughs> as a people and I wanted to show that and so we've, we have a company you know um, when we bring everybody together uh, for peak and Summer we're, we're meant to be performing peak and Summer in October and we're waiting to see if the venue is going to be able to accommodate all of us because when we're on stage you know we're a company of more than fifty people wow and we've and got twenty six in the pit uh you know with various other you know even if you don't have an audience that's we're, we're still looking at if that's going to be possible but
0: um yeah when did you premiere and how many more times was the opera performed since it pre- premiered
1: in two thousand and ten october two thousand
0: and ten in um, Australia. In, in Australia, Melbourne.
1: in fact, on country, on country means oh. where the story comes from. So the story comes from Yorta Yorta Country and we premiered in a little theatre that's less than a kilometre away from where the events unfolded of the Cumra Gunja walk-off. There were 200 men, women and children of Yorta Yorta Nation who walked off that mission station and said, look, we we're we are not going to put up with this anymore. And uh, where they came to rest, where they came to camp, they crossed over a river which we called Dangala uh-huh. and they, they walked from the New South Wales side of Yorta Yorta Country, crossed the river into uh, Victoria side of Yorta Yorta Country and where they came to rest. Only one kilometre from there, there's a lovely proscenium arch theatre and that's where we oh. premiered the opera. Since then, we've been to Melbourne, these are all virtually sold out, uh, yeah. well, just about everywhere, except for Perth, I have to say, but almost everywhere. So we've been to uh, Marupna was the first, Melbourne, then to Perth, then to Adelaide, and then in 2016 uh, to the Sydney Opera House, which um, was mm-hmm. a brand-new production. Uh, and uh, I brought on board a dear friend, Cameron Menzies, who does a lot of directing in the UK, and uh, he's an Australian a Melbourne uh, director has devoted his life to opera and I uh, brought him on board because I thought it's about time uh, because I'd actually directed the other production.
0: Oh, wow. But,
1: but it's about time. You
0: someone, directed and sung on it.
1: Uh, yeah. yeah, it was a bit crazy. But I wanted someone to pay attention to my character yeah. because the Sydney Opera House production was going to be very meaningful to me. It was in the concert hall of the Sydney yeah. Opera House It was the very first place that I ever saw my my first operatic performance Um, featuring my beloved Dame Joan Sutherland. I I really wanted that moment to be completely in my character and not stepping in and out as the director. Mm -hmm. And... uh, you know, it was it was a very successful, sold-out performance, um, many awards, and uh, just a, we're really proud of that achievement. Now this year at the Melbourne Recital Centre, uh, we're bringing that production back to life. Uh, Fantastic. And I'm hoping, you have to, br- have to bring it to the UK. I would love to bring it to the UK, uh, I guess post-Brexit, I don't know, and um, the mm. UK is saying, who are we now? I want to say, well, we are who we've always been for yeah. 2000 generations um <laughs> happy to tell you about that but uh, yeah I'm I'm hoping actually next year we are um we're very hopeful I'm I'm currently the uh, composer in residence at the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra mm-hmm. and uh before the COVID lockdown actually I I was able to have two premieres I was in uh I was in rehearsal for the third one when were told we had to vacate the building because it was being locked down right then and there but um
0: yeah if you are enjoying this podcast there are three simple things you can do to support our work first subscribe this way you will never miss an episode second Tell about us to a friend or family member. You will always have someone to share the stories of this interview and this way we can raise awareness and inspire more people in our way. Third, give us a review on iTunes or whatever other channel you subscribe. This way you will be helping others to find our podcast. Now, let's get back to my conversation with Deborah Cheatham. For you, Mirella, can you please then, I think we didn't really talk about the, the Short Black Opera Company because did it started oh. together with the Beacon Summer or just afterwards? Tell us more about that because I don't think people sure. know exactly sure. what it is and please talk. Short talk. Black
1: Opera Company uh, is a national company, a not-for-profit, hopefully not for loss, but not-for-profit company. We have singers from all around Australia and, uh, And um, except for the ACT, ACT, yeah, we don't have anybody from the Capital Territory, but we have singers that come from all around Australia, all the many nations of Aboriginal people together. There is also a children's choir called Dangala Children's Choir. So they take their name from the River Dangala that flows through Yorta Yorta country. And uh, it was formed in 2008 Uh, and uh, officially became a company in 2009, but formed in 2008 to prepare the singers for the eventual premiere of Pecan Summer. And so that took place uh, at another university, uh, the Victorian College of the Arts, actually, where we trained the singers. Um, I went around the country and auditioned singers and invited those who were ready to come into an immersive training experience, an intensive training experience, invited them to Melbourne. From that uh, original cohort of 15, six went on to to gain their uh, tertiary uh, Bachelor of Music degrees in classical performance. So I'm really, really, really proud of that record. And uh, the company now is about 35 adults and about 25 children. In the, uh, in the Dungala Children's Choir. So we really wanted to make a statement that um, we're not the exception, yeah. that our culture and our story is exceptional and that we are a strong and resilient voice in Australian society. We're not the only one, but we are here and we need to be included, uh, included in our own country. What a concept. And yet that's something that we've had to fight for ever since the British invaded in 1788. In fact, um, Short Black Opera is expanding now outside of uh, vocal music to include instrumental music. And um, I'm happy to announce, if you'd like.
0: uh, Yes, please.
1: That uh, we have formed Ensemble Dutala. Dutala is another yorta yorta word. And Dutala means star-filled sky and Ensemble Dutala will be Australia's first Indigenous chamber orchestra. Wow. It is very heavily inspired by uh, Chichi. Uh, Chichi. Chi's work with um, yeah. yeah, with uh, um, Chinek, Chichi yeah. and I have um, have talked on many occasions uh, about the work that she's done. I'm totally inspired by by her, and even though we have uh, fewer numbers to draw on, I'm sure that you know, with that pioneering work that Chi-Chi has done into mm. the classical instrumental space, uh, Ensemble Dutala will soon have a very strong presence. Uh, Amazing. So Short Black Opera is expanding all the time. We're creating new works. Uh, the Woven Song series, for instance, which is a, a collection. Oh, no, no, opera. please t-
0: tell, tell more about oh, the Woven Song. tell Yeah, quickly. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, you want me to tell about Woven Song? Yeah. Okay, so one song is a collection of 10 chamber works that uh, I'm writing. I've currently, um, I think I'm up to number five at the moment. Uh, each work is inspired by a tapestry which hangs in one of our um, embassies around the world. So this includes Singapore, Tokyo, New Delhi, Rome, the Holy See, uh, Washington, Dublin, Beijing, Jakarta and Tokyo. They're the 10 embassies. There are 10 beautiful tapestries, which in turn were inspired by original works by Aboriginal artists. And uh, I wanted to write chamber music that would respond to each of the tapestries, Mm -hmm. um, that would include the uh, members of an Australian, several Australian ensembles, including Ensemble Dutala, and also collaborate with a local artist. So, for instance, in New Delhi, We had the very great pleasure of working with tabla master Ashis Sengupta uh, and that's a name that tabla lovers will know very well. In Tokyo, we worked with a magnificent shakuhachi master, uh, Rezon Kuroda. And in Singapore, we worked with three singers, Uh, not because that's the native (laughs) instrument of Singapore, but... uh, because uh, we had a relation there, a relationship there with the Nanyang Conservatorium already, so uh, we were meant to go to Beijing already this year. We were meant to have mm. premiered in Jakarta. We were meant to be in Rome and the Holy See in November. Who knows when these things will happen? But they yeah. will happen because
0: music will triumph. Of course it will. And I just want to make a parenthesis and uh, just acknowledge from from me to you that how grateful I am that you exist. <laughs> Because what you do, uh, you could just be the amazing and only Aboriginal opera singer uh, in from Australia and you could really capitalise from that a lot, but you choose as an artist to first tell stories to include more people and i have goosebumps just talking about it of all the amazing work you're doing and i hope you inspire many other artists out out there who feel they are from a A community which is not being showcased or not giving the privilege that they can or they should have and they they should what they should do is to really help their brothers and sisters and to help to promote them and because I really believe in in this I, I really don't believe in this sense that there is not space for people there is so much space for art and there is so much space pays for diversity. And what you're doing is extremely inspirational. So I just wanted to make this parenthesis. And I would like to ask you, we, the time is going too fast, to please, uh, if you can please talk about Eumerala now, finally. And you called a war requiem for peace, and I would love you, for you to tell us more about it. Sure. Well,
1: again, Eumerala uh, is a river, So the Dungala I've mentioned several times. The Umarella flows through the southwest of the state that I live in, Victoria. Victoria is probably the size of Germany. I mean, we live on a big continent here, okay, so. But down in southwest um, Victoria are the lands of the Gunditjmara people. And uh, quite recently they received World Heritage Listing for their uh, traditional lands, which is a great uh, achievement for them but um, in 2014 we were performing Pecan Summer in uh, in Adelaide actually in South Australia and a number of the Gunditjmara people, uh, the senior leaders of Gunditjmara people had travelled to Adelaide to see the performance of Pecan Summer and at the reception afterwards the senior elder Uncle Ken Saunders approached me after seeing this Yorta Yorta story played out in classical music. Mm-hmm. He said, I want that for our story. I want that for mm. the story of the Umarela War. And so my journey began to really understand all of the history of the Umarela Wars. In Australia, that war lasted from 1840 to 1863. Yeah, It's estimated that at the time the war began between, of course, the Gunditjmara people and the colonisers, the squatters, Squatters who were sent in by the by the uh, with the authority of the governors of the day to clear the lands of everything, including the people. The Gunditjamarra fought back. To this day, they're known as the Fighting Gunditjamarra. They fought back and, and resisted for twenty three years. At the beginning of that conflict or series of conflicts, it was estimated that there were something like nine thousand members of the Gunditjamarra nations by the end of it there were just 77 people
0: oh my god
1: who were rounded up and put onto a mission station the lake konda mission i've never been to a more haunted place it's haunted by the spirit of the people who either they died in the conflict or in retreating from the conflict and and camping by their known waterholes And drinking from that water, they were poisoned by the strychnine that the colonisers had left there. You know, this week our Prime Minister said, yes, our beginnings were brutal. They were brutal for everyone. And I want to say, well, who brought the brutality? And who invited you to bring it? Not the Gunditjmara. They didn't ask for that. But they did survive and and they came back. And part of the revival of their language has been this project, Umorella, a war requiem for peace, and I drew on the inspiration of uh, various composers. Of course, the obvious one is Benjamin Britten's *Departure* from the Latin text with the Wilfred Owen uh, poetry. Brahms also used German text rather than the traditional Latin. I had originally thought that I would somehow translate the Latin into Gunditjmara with the help of senior custodian uh, Vicky Cousins and linguist Travis Mm Ira. But when I started looking at the Latin text and reminding myself, I got as far as the agnus Dei, agnus Dei qui tollis peccata mundi. For those of you who haven't been brushing up on your Latin, it's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I couldn't use the iconography of a lamb when mm-hmm. I knew very well that those Gunditjmara people perished so that they could clear the way for the sheep to graze on their land. Oh, yeah. Gunditjmara people were sacrificed for the sake of the sheep. I could not use that iconography. I don't deny its importance to people of the Christian faith. I don't think some things are mutually exclusive. But I do think that... At that point, when I realised this was this just could not translate, could not translate into Gunditjmara. I could not use that text. I had to write my own text, mm-hmm. and I'm so very glad I did. Umarella had an on country premiere down on Gunditjmara Country. It's almost 80 minutes long, and a Senior Elder of Gunditjmara came up to me. Auntie Denise came up to me on the day, and she said the ancestors heard the language for the first time in a century, and the land heard the language. And it was just the most profound gift after a performance I've ever, ever received, that endorsement. We brought it to Melbourne last year with an MSO, and I'm hoping it will come to the UK next year.
0: Please. But did you learn to speak for this composition?
1: Do you know, um, so... Indigenous languages around the perimeter of Australia, particularly in the southeast, they were so impacted on by colonisation and by the murders and the massacres that um, and by the fear that Aboriginal parents had for their children. Families that were heard speaking in their own language were the most severely punished. Um, so the languages were suppressed, buried deep for safekeeping. So they're in revival now.
0: But mm-hmm. I have
1: to tell you, um, Umarela has made you know the poetry that was necessary for the telling of the story and the requiem structure, that really became the mother of necessity again. And, yeah. and, and so um, Vicky Cousins, who'd been working on reviving the language for more than a decade, she, uh, she advanced that work through Humorella, yeah. so I'm very pleased about that. And I did. By the end of the compositional process, which took me about two years, I did find myself dreaming in Gunditjmara, so I was pretty happy about that. It's not at a conversational point yet in -hmm. Gunditjmara country, but I think that I will live to see uh, that. And that's the other thing I should have said about the woven song process and other things that I'm writing now, I'm... Specialising in writing in indigenous languages, almost almost exclusively, not entirely, but uh, there's work to be done there. So I'm I'm really focusing a lot of my attention. And one also- work that uh, did premiere this year before lockdown, uh, or two of the works that premiered this year before lockdown were both in, one was in Bunwarang and one was in Yorta Yorta, with the Mso. So I'm very happy about that.
0: I just wanted to ask you if you still suffer any challenges for being a woman in the business last week i spoke to another composer and she was black and she was female and she was telling me that all the layers of difficulties that she found in her in her career do you still find prejudice or do you have to fight the industry i
1: find I find, i find ignorance there's still a lot of ignorance around the value of the contribution of women I find a lot of ignorance still there and on some days I'm wading through it up to my neck and other days, you know, and, that, uh, and that's not simply the domain of, of men, you mm-hmm. know, there, there's ignorance that we have to push through and we have to enlighten. We have to. It's a role that we have um, where there are no opportunities, then I'll create them if I see a necessity, you know, if I see a need rather. Yeah. No one asked me to be a composer. I was asked to write Humorella by Uncle Ken Saunders, but no one asked me to write "Peacock Summer." I had to do it. No one asked me to write "Woven Song." I had to do that as well. I wanted to make what I wanted to do with "Woven Song" was to um, was to reconnect visual art with song because the arts were never siloed in their practice in in, in traditional cultures. The the singer is the dancer. The dancer is the painter. The painter is the storyteller. You know these things were woven together, if you like. So yeah. I think that um, oh, I've been battling the weight of low expectation. I think one of the one of the most um, distressing things that I that I experienced recently was uh, in a performance last year where the conductor I was working with had no no respect for me as the composer. And I think that was born out of two things. I think there may have been some racism there, but I think even deeper than that is what the hell is a soprano doing uh, writing oh. music at this level, you know?
0: Yeah, being a soprano comes a with it.
1: You know, Gabriella, you know, there's such low, uh, like, you know, give me any, you know, it's just another layer of, of, of prejudice. And I had to battle through that. And music won the day. The piece itself has been nominated for award. An award. I'm not going to name names, but it was a horrible, horrible experience where yeah. there actually were some racial slurs that were that were delivered to my dressing room. Can you believe after a performance? Now look, I'm a 55 year old yoddy yodder woman who's pretty much seen it all. So let me tell you, it still gutters me. It still takes away my breath that someone would make a racial and and also a um. It was not only a racial but a gender-specific slur. It makes me just more determined to protect the generations that are coming behind me, uh, to protect our younger artists from this experience and to weed out that kind of ignorance and arrogance and rid our, our beautiful music community of it all together because in Australia there are so few opportunities. We really can't afford to give any to people that just have not evolved as human beings uh, enough. So, you know, this, this can happen. On the other hand, there I was with the MSO um, in June for Umarela with beautiful Benjamin Norley, one of the most amazing conductors in Australia. Um, with empathy by the bucket load. He's a man that if he doesn't understand, he makes it a point of going out there and finding out so that he yeah. can understand. I love that. I love that. You know, I could spend my whole life uh, just um, helping people go on that dis- that little journey from knowing to understanding, and and I try to do that through music. But I'm so yeah. encouraged by people like Benjamin, who has an incredible schedule of events that uh, he, he has you know made a study of what Umarala means to so many people and that's why he conducted it so well.
0: I'm going to just uh, pop some questions that were here from earlier on. So Kelly asked, did the elder who recommended you to go up there to research knew your family or was part of it was a coincidence?
1: Ah, that's a really good question. Well, my, it happens that my, my Aboriginal mother who I was taken from when I was just three weeks of age, she uh, had a very famous brother. Her eldest brother was a very famous musician in Australia. His name was Jimmy Little. And uh, most Australians would, of a certain age would know that name and every Aboriginal Australian knows how they're connected to Jimmy Little. Mm-hmm. Adi Carolyn knew that Jimmy was my uncle. She knew that Jimmy, um, Jimmy was born on Kamra Gandra. So she knew that. She didn't tell yeah. me. She knew that I had to go there and experience that. I had to be on country to learn that. Yeah. Um, you know, if you told me all of that when I was 21 years of age, I wouldn't have been ready to, to cope with it. I wouldn't have been ready. Um, so these things, sometimes you have to mature into uh, a readiness to take on information. I think that's what's happening for the whole of Australia actually. Uh, as, as Australia, as that concept, we're maturing to a point where we can take on some of, the, some of the deeper meaning of what it is to live on this continent. So short answer is I think she knew, but I yeah. had to go and find out for myself.
0: Mary Ellen asks, how do you personally deal with what you refer to as ignorance? Where does your strength come from? Good question, Mary Ellen. Today...
1: It came from my loving partner. We've had a very difficult week, um, yeah. very difficult two weeks. We lost a young member of our community, and um, we call that sorry business, and it's been heartbreaking. And um, there's nothing that would be worse than that, but compounding that grief has been the ignorant comments by our elected officials this week has been the lack of empathy, has been the exploitation, has been so many other things. And two things, coming together even online with the rest of my community, my Short Black Opera community and my Dungala Children's Choir community to put together a song for a farewell for that young man who mm. who we lost last week. I draw strength from that even even though it's online, I draw strength from the ability to make music with the rest of my community. I draw strength from my partner who who greets for what I have to go through um, for the absolute um rubbish that we have to wade through. Uh, some days it's it's a heavy load. Uh, I think it's Mary Mary Ellen who's asked this some days some days it feels like, You won't get through it, and yet you have to. How lucky am I that I have an expression as powerful as music Mm. to pour my grief or my frustration, my anger, my joy, my um, exuberation into I couldn't function if there was no music in the world. I Mm. simply couldn't function.
0: Thank you. Hannah is asking how can oh here how can universities and schools do more to embrace inclusivity? <laughs> That's a really luck. good question.
1: Well, I was talking about this uh, recently and um, you know you have to jump through a lot of hoops to become a professor in a university. there's a lot of knowledge you need to acquire. there are many there are many stages to your development to be able to prove that you can hold a position. And so here I am in one of Australia's large universities and I hold that position. And um, what I want to say to Australian universities, all of them, big, small, everything in between, your teaching staff, your academics need to have a level of cultural competency in order to gain a position on your faculty. That's what we need to do. That's the Australian academic community that I want to see. If I can leave any sort of impression or legacy uh, at the end of my days, it would be that our universities
0: demand
1: of those people who seek a position that they are emotionally mature enough to develop their own cultural competency and not get a position and then have to somehow fill the gap once they're there. I think that that has to be a criteria. If you're going to teach in Australia, then you need to understand what Australia is. So I think we need to make more demands of ourselves. I don't exclude myself. I don't know everything. Ten years ago, I didn't know anything about the Umarela War. If you're hearing about it for the first time, don't feel ashamed, yeah. but don't ignore it now that you've heard of it.
0: Yes, I, I think that's. Um, I was very ashamed I think I felt the same uh, and I felt quite embarrassed a few years ago, like five years ago when I came across this amazing talent, the names of women in history, in the history of music, in the history of composition. And you feel embarrassed. And then very soon afterwards, I felt quite angry. And I think that anger and this, this sense of, we need to keep having these conversations. We need to keep having these conversations, not only when we see something really sad happen in America like we we are watching now. We can't talk about racism only when this happened. We can't talk about women in music only in March. And we can't talk about these stories only here today. And I think I I think everybody watching this, and I hope people can share, because what everything you told us is extremely valuable. And as you say, don't forget i think that's the the clue for everybody i find and i say, i'm like you i feel like i don't know everything i feel very happy that i can provide a a small uh, platform for women composers but i'm learning on a daily basis
1: oh absolutely i i think that um the strides that we've made or the steps that we've made in Australia our our national broadcaster for several years had a focus on women composers over a period of a week I tell you I was actually um, I was actually broadcasting on the ABC I I had a program uh, on the ABC when um, uh, a few years ago now and i you know, International Women's Day came along and we're focusing on women composers and it was just the one day at that stage. The amount of hate mail that we receive from people, how dare you devote a whole day just to women? Like, it's it's unbelievable, but this was only about five years ago. So there's work no. to be done. Um, I say to anybody who, uh, who challenges... Uh, uh, I actually I don't say to people who challenge I just put the music out there and they hear it Yeah. and, and hopefully that will change their mind. I mean, it's one of the great inspirations not of my style but just of the intensity with which I want to compose is is Lily Boulanger. Yeah. She lived yeah. such such a short life. Most people would know of Nadia but Lily the first uh, female composer to win the Prix de Rome. Um, Really, she was everything that Foray and Debussy aspired to, really. She was a genius, and um, that should be a household name in my opinion. Well, it is in my house. Uh, yeah, that is a household name, um, and I want the same for our Australian composers. I'm really proud that there are there are groups like, um, well, Rubik's Collective, uh, one of the one of the groups that uh, one of the ensembles that plays one of the woven song pieces from New Delhi. They've championed uh, female composers by offering um, a prize every year, mm-hmm. the Pythia Prize. I mean, these are just young. These are young, 28. 27-year-old musicians who, who see I can do something Yeah, and and we all can do something. Yeah. Don't wait for an invitation. It'll never come if you're passionate about it. And I say to you, Gabriella, you've said more than once to me now, on air and off air, that you wish that you can compose. Just do it. Do it for yourself. Do it on what you know. Do it on your instrument. Yeah. And then if you need to collaborate to take it further, then do that. But I didn't wait for an invitation and, you know, When I started out with um, Pecan Summer, I didn't trust myself to be able to orchestrate the the score. I wrote the piano vocal score, obviously, and Mm -hmm. the libretto. I was also teaching the singers and directing the production, so I thought I was doing enough and singing in it. But I I didn't trust myself to get the orchestration done because I didn't know anything about orchestration. I hadn't studied it. So I brought Jessica Wells on board, fabulous Australian orchestrator and composer, and she did a brilliant job. I'm now looking at that score and adding my voice to that as, as an orchestrator. But, I, you know, what I didn't know, well, then I, I went out and I did a course and I found out and I, I asked people's advice and um, and there's still a lot I don't know. Uh, people who play string instruments look at me, you know, Deborah, do you not realise that triple stopping is not possible um, physically? Oh, well, good, now I do know. <laughs> don't worry about you know what i say to my students i've always said this for many years don't be ashamed of not knowing something that not knowing isn't a problem what uh, the problem is not bothering to find out yeah okay you should be ashamed if you never bother to find out australia's history composition how to write double stopping for a viola find out (laughs) A couple of works uh, in train at the moment. The Woven Song series is going on. Jessica Hitchcock, uh, a, a, a brilliant young musician um, uh, who's been part of Short Black Opera all along, she and I are writing a children's opera called Cheeky Opera, which will be uh, which will be ready for publication uh, later this year. Look, uh, there are some things I can't announce, but there are, there is a, there is a new opera on the way. Apart from the children's opera there are orchestral works, chamber music. Um, it, it, I really need a couple of extra days in the week and a few more hours in every yeah. single day. Uh, but I will ask the stories I'm written to ask if they're outside of my, uh, of my own experience. And I would encourage musicians who are fascinated by Indigenous cultures around the world to, um, to wait for a genuine invitation. It will seem like a really good thing that you're going in and doing but wait for the invitation. Um, it will be a much more rewarding experience for you. How do you get an invitation? Well, form a relationship. Take the time. Go on country. Learn the history. Listen to the elders. Be patient. Allow yourself to be a child again and, and, and learn this knowledge. It will not take away. It may take away some level of grief that you have, something that's missing in your life. But um, I can tell you. I had to do it. I didn't grow up in my culture. I had to learn it. And i tell you what, it's completed my identity in a way that nothing else could have.
0: Deborah, thank you so much. I think... Um, my pleasure. I always end this conversations asking, although you, you talked about this previously in our conversation today, but we... We see now we are living in a time when we're so lucky to have the internet, and we have access to music, we have access to recordings, we have access to watching your opera. Uh, I'm sure people can just contact you and get the score to perform uh, in other countries uh, and to share this. Um, I don't know what you think, my experience with my little knowledge of everything that's being performed, but the, the change in the industry is very slow in the sense that what what are the big playing, how is this rich, amazing music that we have in our tapestry is being neglected uh, and, and people don't really have excuse. They do have excuses like, oh, the music doesn't exist, no. Or the music is not good enough, no. Oh, it's very hard to find the scores, not really. So number one, why do you think this is still happening? And you are already doing so much and I think we all we both talked about we all have to do our part uh, to contribute as artists as well but what is your advice for people watching here today and what can, what else can we do to change I this? have
1: great I have great faith in the generation that we're seeing take uh, take on leadership now, I mentioned that group Rubik's and other great, you know, those 27, 28, 29 year olds. They are a force to be reckoned with. They they will see it done. Um, and we, our, my job is to create a clear pathway um, so that their job is a little bit easier. But uh, those young women will see it done, and and they're finding new ways. They have been for ages. You know, I, I don't know too many 28-year-olds who, who actually own televisions. They they all they all select what they, they view very carefully. They listen to their podcasts. They curate their yeah. podcasts very carefully. They are not going to just accept the patriarchal mechanism that's been so exclusive for so long. And I don't exclude men. I know some fine men. Doesn't that sound great? Some of my best friends are men. Um <laughs> But uh, I'm all for strong, empathetic, emotionally intelligent uh, male leadership alongside the female leadership that is essential for humanity. I I have great confidence in this next generation. I've seen what they've done already. And uh, what we have to do is make sure that um, all of the gains that we have made, all of the slow progress, still moves in the right direction. And don't wait to be invited. If no one's inviting you to their opera company, form your own. If no one invites you to sing your aria, write your own. I've been putting on concerts since I was in year five, you know, because I wasn't necessarily going to get picked for the team or the project or whatever. The exclusion that I experienced through racism as a child taught me that I had to be resilient. And um, while I'm not grateful for the experience of the racism, I'm grateful for the resilience of my ancestors, which is what allows me any strength that I can demonstrate on any given day.
0: For listeners wanting to know more about Donne and everything we do, please check our website on www.donne-uk.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes to subscribe and while you're there, it would be great if you could rate and review the show and spread the word on social media. Thank you so much for listening and I look forward to be with you in our next interview.